right, here we go. Hello, and welcome to the Junto Cast, a monthly podcast on early American history. I'm Ken Owen, an assistant professor of early American history at the University of Illinois Springfield. And today on the podcast, we're going to be discussing print culture in early America. That is, we'll be discussing the role that printers, authors, and printed materials played in American politics and society before, during, and after the American Revolution. And to join me in this task, I'm joined by three other Junto bloggers. First up, we have a man who's currently at an undisclosed location, having been denounced as an enemy of the people in the local newspapers. I'm talking, of course, of Michael Hatton. Thanks for joining us. Who, me? Michael is a PhD candidate at Yale University. Next, we have a man who's found transatlantic fame with the printing of his evocative and erudite sermons. We're joined by Roy Rogers. Howdy. Roy is a PhD candidate at the CUNY Graduate Centre. And finally, we're delighted to welcome to the Junto cast a man whose folksy wisdom appears in almanacs up and down the East Coast. Welcome to the podcast, Jonathan Wilson. Ahoy there. And Jonathan recently received his PhD from Syracuse University. Congratulations. Thanks very much. So before we get going with today's discussion, there's a couple of announcements we'd like to make. Um, firstly, as we mentioned last month, we have a new website, which can be found at thejuntocast.com. And if you go there, you'll be able to find all our past episodes, as well as show notes and further reading lists. And on that website, we also have a listener survey put up there. So please do visit and fill that listener survey out. We'd love to know what you like about the podcast and what you'd like us to do more of. So to kick off today's discussion, we thought we should talk a little bit about what print culture actually is. And to give us a working definition of the term, I'll now hand over to Michael. So I think that uh, what we talk about when we talk about early American print culture is, of course, in part, forms of print themselves, uh, whether that's, you know, books, newspapers, pamphlets, broadsides or magazines. But it, it goes beyond just the reading of texts, which can often be a, you know, sort of intellectual type of history. Print culture encompasses not just the text themselves, but, you know, sort of far broader uh, print economy that includes the production of those texts, the circulation, reception. It includes the relationships and uh, networks that are created and developed in that process. Uh, it also covers the ways in which groups like political factions or competing religious denominations use print media, uh, particularly in political and religious conflicts. Uh, print culture encompasses intellectual history, economic history, history of the book, political history, uh, religious history, cultural history, uh, you know, and, and it, the term print culture refers to this sort of distinct sphere, uh, but it also includes most broadly the relationship generally between print and society, uh, print and uh, broader culture. And I think it also reflects the way in which print was the primary glue which held communications networks together in early America as well. The, as you were saying, with this, this broader culture that print is absolutely central to it, that basically if you want to operate as a functioning human being within early America, print will make its way into your life in some way, shape or form. Right, absolutely. And, you know, when we uh, when we talk about the sort of purposes of print, you know, uh, a little bit later, you know, we'll find that, you know, they are, uh, they're very broad and, and cut through a broad swath of uh, colonial society. Well, it's quite apposite that you've talked about the different forms of print that were used in colonial America, uh, because that was going to be the next thing that I brought up. Uh, the different sorts of printed materials that make their way throughout the colonies and play such an influential role within the political, social, economic life 
of the people that live there. So perhaps we can start off by talking about some of the different forms of print that were used and why they were so important within colonial society. Um, Michael, I know you wanted to start off by talking about books in colonial America. Right. So books are one form of print in the 18th century. Uh, book ownership in the middle of the 18th century was not necessarily a common thing. Most families owned one or two books, usually a Bible or a Psalter or, or Almanac, uh, and there were no public libraries as we know them now. And because of the small market for books, printers in the colonies didn't really print them. So they had to be imported from England, and that made them more expensive uh, and limited their circulation. And for the, you know, sort of elites who own the vast majority, books were quite important. Um, this is especially when, you know, they would be exposed to college libraries, which were larger than all but a few small private libraries. They were important for elite education and for middling class self-education. But culturally, they were also status symbols, right? That's why uh, you see so many portraits done in the mid-18th century. Uh, and beyond uh, that often included the subject's books. They're holding one or they're sitting in front of a bookshelf. Um, but non-elites had increasing access to books as the century wore on. Uh, you also get in mid-century this burst of the establishment of social libraries, which were you know, uh, libraries for dues-paying members, but anyone who could afford the dues could be a member. Uh, and in the 1760s, they, they really begin uh, sort of popping up all over and the members' dues would be used to buy the books. Uh, and colonists, you know, read fiction, including the novel, which was new. They read religious works, history, politics, law. Uh, there were lots of textbooks and treatises on all kinds of scientific and mathematic topics. There were um, all kinds of books on agricultural topics, as you can imagine. And I think that uh, what I find most interesting about those social libraries is that it's easy to think of books as being you know, solely an elite thing, but access to books was growing throughout the century. And from a cultural perspective, you know, you have uh, these uh, groups of people coming together, uh, creating these networks that they pooled their resources to effectively create uh, public institutions. And uh, so, you know, you can see the importance of books, you know, through throughout colonial society, from elites down to the more middling working class grow throughout the century. And I think that topic and theme of growth throughout the century is something that we'll see in all the forms that, that we're discussing, that as the colonies matured, their access to printed materials increased, both just in the presence of more printing presses, in the existence of more printers, um, but also, as you say, in the growth of an institutional culture, um, which encouraged reading and encouraged the consumption of printed materials in various ways. One of the ways in which print was particularly useful in these days was through newspapers, although colonial newspapers were very different from the newspapers that we would pick up today. Um, if you were to pick up a colonial newspaper, it would typically be um, four pages, sort of one folded sheet put together, um, and the front and the back pages would almost always be entirely filled up with advertising, which was the main way that newspaper printers were able to make some sort of money out of their printing. And then inside, that's where you'd get news and opinion articles, um, often that would appear side by side with little break and little distinction put between them. Certainly you wouldn't find the splash photography or the large print headlines that you'd find in today's newspapers. And within those sections, you would see the latest news, the news literally that had come off the, the ships. Um, and that would start off with often with foreign news, then move to domestic news, and it would be the main way through which information was circulated. Newspapers were generally um, subscribed to. The, the, the idea would be that you would take out a subscription for newspapers, but they were also a very public form of reading as well, in that most people wouldn't actually pay for the newspaper themselves, but they would hear about the news because 
newspapers would be read aloud in coffee shops and taverns and would form the basis of political and public discussion. Yeah, I mean, very similar to uh, the newspaper literature of the uh, 18th century were pamphlets and broadsides. But unlike newspapers, they were generally single authored uh, and they were more directly interventionist. So uh, a pamphlet would be written about a specific controversy, but either religious or political or social. And it would be written by, for particularly controversial subjects, an anonymous or, uh, or a pseudonymous uh author and like newspapers they would be often read out loud at taverns and coffee shops so while you know access directly to a physical pamphlet was generally restricted the access to the ideas that the pamphlet expressed were very much open to the public and very much in the same sort of sphere as the newspaper culture right and as opposed to 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 books uh, specifically, right? Newspapers and pamphlets are important because uh, because of the the size of their audience, right? Which was much greater than books. Newspapers, people took out subscriptions, uh, which printers had a, a very hard time collecting the money for. Um, but they were shared. They were shared widely. And pamphlets, um, you know, pamphlets uh, cost less than a book, so they were, uh, you know, within. Uh, the buying power of someone who was interested in following a, a specific, you know, uh, public debate. What's so fascinating, though, about print culture in general is just also but how public-facing it was. Even books, right? Because books were traded among friends. Uh, in the South, planters would lend, rich planters would lend their books out to poor planters or to their tutors of their children. And it was just so interesting is just how much text was in circulation, even if the amount of printed material, particularly when you got outside of cities like Boston, Philadelphia, and New York, printed material could be relatively scarce, but that printed material had a wide circulation, much wider than we would normally think uh, based on the amount that's just printed in the colonies at this time. There's another form of print in colonial America that I think is important to talk about, and that's magazines, which are really... Um, different from the other ones that we've talked about in some ways in their comprehensiveness. The term magazine originally comes from a term for a storehouse. A magazine is supposed to bring together bits and pieces from all over public and private life and really sort of build uh, a comprehensive, urbane, sophisticated reader. Magazines are the most varied of these forms of print, but by the same token, they're widely accessible. But one thing that does uh, become important in the colonial period is that they do face very much toward Britain. Because magazines are about really forming a sophisticated and cultured reader, they often bring uh, American print culture in contact with Britain and especially with London and, to some extent, Edinburgh, much more than some other forms of print do, because this is the culture that American elite readers might be inclined to emulate. Yeah, I, th I think that's... That's a really important point, is the way that this print culture does link back to London, that if we were to look at the book trades, that has very strong links with London. Newspapers as well have a reliance on information that's come from foreign newspapers and typically British newspapers to give something that's new and distinctive, especially in the cities that have multiple competing newspapers. Those that can get news from Europe faster than others are the ones that are most likely to stand out within the marketplace. I mean, perhaps, perhaps pamphlets are more of an American form, although obviously that's still building off a, a vibrant pamphlet, pamphlet and broadside culture that exists back in Britain. Um, and I think some of the other things that you mentioned made me think of almanacs as well, that were also an incredibly popular and quite widespread form of, of print culture. Um, and again, often facing Britain in a very strong way with calendars of royal birthdays or other important anniversaries in in British culture uh, mixed in with the folksy sayings of 
Poor Richard's Almanac or astronomical charts or all sorts of other things, but it's, it's difficult to perhaps appreciate now when this information is is so easily available why these why these almanacs were so popular but they would definitely be a very reliable source of income for printers that could find a successful means of developing them in the 18th century right i i think that just to just to go back to to magazines uh, for one other point i think you know there's a there's a difference between magazines and these other forms that we've talked about with books and newspapers and pamphlets and that is uh the the other three uh experienced pretty steady growth throughout the 18th century but the development of magazines in the colonies uh was sort of was quite stop and start uh for a long time uh, you know, there were a few magazines developed in the, the uh, 17, early 1740s. The, both of them were in Pennsylvania, uh, and they don't really last that long. Um, some are started in 1750s in uh, New York City, and, and they, don't, they don't last much longer than a year or two either. And part of that is because, you know, people were getting copies of the uh, Gentleman's Magazine uh, and and, and uh, British magazines like that, but you know, after the revolution, that we'll probably talk about, they they start to really uh, take off. But this is one of, that's a major difference between magazines and these other forms of print, in that it its growth was uh, not as steady and consistent as the the rest of these forms of print. One of the things that we've talked about there is the way in which the accessibility and availability of print grew during the 18th century. And we focused in our discussion so far on forms, but I think it might be useful also to think about some of the particular events which helped lead to the development of print culture in early America. So if we look at the 18th century, what are the key moments that really allow printers to make economic advantage of their technology and what really brings print culture to play such a central role within the political and social life of the colonies. Right. Well, I think in terms of long-term developments, one has to mention the growth of literacy in the colonies as a major factor in the growth of print. But if we're talking in terms of events, I think there are a few high-profile cases in the 1720s and 1730s that pitted printers against royal governments, right? The first of these is in New England in the 1720s when James Franklin, uh, Ben Franklin's older brother, was arrested for printing what was considered uh, seditious libel uh, that impugned the colony's political leadership in his newspaper. And this eventually led to uh, Benjamin Franklin taking over the printing of that newspaper, the New England Current. Uh, for a short time. And there was also a well-known case in the early 1730s in New York City when John Peter Zenger, who was a printer for the court or anti-governor uh, political faction, was arrested and imprisoned for uh, libel for attacking Governor William Cosby in print. And I think it's important to note that seditious libel in this period was not defined by its veracity, right? So even if what you printed or said was true, it was still uh, libelous as long as it defamed the government or government officials. And in fact, the, the, the more true uh, what you said was, the more libelous it was, because then the degree of defamation was greater than if you were actually telling a lie. And that seems sort of counterintuitive to us now, but this wasn't a time when printers often relied on government contracts to sustain their businesses. And at a time when newspapers carried bylines on their masthead that read, uh, published by authority. Right, meaning by the authority of the government. And so while these episodes may not have contributed directly to the growth of print, uh, they did help set the stage for the sort of hyper-politicization of print uh, that began in the 1740s and that eventually played a major role in the imperial resistance of the 1760s and 1770s. Print culture is also central to sort of the well, most well-known group of sort of religious revivals of the 18th century, which we did a whole episode on, The uh, the Great Awakening. And it, what's so interesting about The Great Awakening and print culture is that it really shows the interrelationship between American print and British print, because uh, probably the most famous printed matter of 
The Great Awakening is Jonathan uh, Edwards' uh, A Faithful Narrative. And, of course, that was printed first in London uh, and not in New England. And it was consumed heavily in England, but it was also consumed heavily in the colonies. It helped... You know, spark a series and helped inspire a series of revivals in England, uh, most famously, you know, George Whitfield, who will then come over to the colonies, uh, and his own preaching will be heavily promoted within the print culture of New England, of Pennsylvania, and even in the South, where, you know, in many ways he does this great. Uh, transcolonial tour that you can follow. You, it's one of the few sort of transcolonial events that you can really follow in the newspapers. And but also that uh, Edwards' uh, faithful narrative spawns an entire polemical pamphlet literature that's published on both sides of the Atlantic. And oftentimes, just like Edwards, his interlocutors will publish in London for a controversy that they're really targeting in Boston. So there's this constant transatlantic swirl of these religious ideas and experiences that really hooks onto the fact that there really is no American print culture in, in the same way you can say after the revolution, particularly when it comes to religion uh, in the colonial period. But at the same time, it does help create intercolonial phenomena and I think your point about Whitfield was and Edwards is particularly important because it prepares the way for these things to become such mammoth events that Whitfield turning up and energizing a crowd would be news enough but if you've read a newspaper report about a sermon and then you've read the sermon yourself so you're already receptive to the ideas there's sort of this way that print culture allows a snowballing of the effect that goes beyond just the appearance of an incredibly charismatic preacher to something that allows people to feel connections um, across previously fairly hard and fast borders and so although there is this link with Britain there's also these growing links between different colonies that print is facilitating. And I think that's one of the reasons that print culture has become such an important term in thinking about the developments and the, the causes of social and political change in the 18th century. If we're talking about politics and religion, I think we're ultimately also talking about something more comprehensive, something bigger, because we're talking about print becoming a kind of a mirror of society or a mirror of the world. It's bringing us news from across the oceans, but it's also increasingly telling us what's happening in our own country or city. We're seeing our own communities reflected back to us in these texts. Whether we're dealing with political debates or religious debates, ultimately we're considering what it means to be who we are in these contexts. One of the results of this kind of cultural function of print in general is that it leads to some odd kind of controversies that are maybe unexpected to us today, like uh, a very long-running uh, set of controversies over novels and over fiction in general. Uh, the novel in the 18th century is actually a pretty controversial genre. In many ways, it seems to express what's wrong with the world. It's, it's about people's vices and their lusts, rather than necessarily depicting the world as it should be. It seems to be about emotion rather than reason, and often it seems to expose readers to uh, authorial suggestion. People talk about um, the tyranny of uh, that the the author of a novel is exercising over readers, and also novels are often about women and written for women and written by women. And some 18th century British critics uh, tend to worry that this is making public discourse uh, effeminate, that it's not just male critics either. Um, in 1790, Judith Sergeant Murray complains to the Massachusetts Magazine that society is encouraging women to read nothing but novels as a way to keep them wholly domesticated, in her words. Um, so people are really worried about um, the different forms of print uh, possibly undermining public discourse uh, in a way that threatens the norms of 18th century um, print and, and readers' expectations for it.
And this is partly related to a point that I think Roy made earlier about print's public purposes. Like, there's an expectation that print is going to convey some kind of authority, that it's somehow different from uh, purely private discourse. And uh, something like the novel, when it tends to blur that distinction, uh, tends to make some critics fairly nervous. Um, but the result is that by the end of the 18th century, because there are also authors and critics who are defending uh, fictional discourse and these kinds of private literature, um, by the end of the 18th century, some people have also come to see print as a powerful cultural force for good as well as perhaps for evil. Right, and so you know, I think that one of the things that comes out of that is just how politicized print had become in Anglo-American culture by the sort of uh, mid to, to, to late 18th century. And I think that's a pretty good segue to, to talk about the role of print culture in the revolution. Right, because right, one of the things that's clear, I think, by the mid-century is even in places where print culture is sort of at its institutional weakest, which is the South, increasingly culture is being enacted through texts. And that's that drive beginning in the 1730s and just accelerating in places like Virginia and Maryland, South Carolina, to establish long-running, if inconsistently running, newspapers and to try to get presses. And there's sort of this sense that in order for culture to be created, and in many ways for politics uh, and even religion to be practiced, you must it must be in print. And that's, I think, something that is increasingly clear by the time we get to the controversies that are going to spin us into the revolution. Yes, and I think that yeah, by the time, and this is scarcely a new point, but by the time you get to the 1760s, the colonies are a much more mature society. And we've talked about forms, we've talked about different purposes of literature, I mean, one of, the, um, of print culture even, one of the things that stands out to me is the way that governments become pretty important, that if they want to be able to transmit their laws and their official communications, they need to have reliable print networks and print culture so that laws and other official documents can be disseminated effectively over large expanses of land that can't easily be travelled, that don't necessarily have the much easier personal connections of the, the, early, the early colonial societies. So we're seeing a much more developed infrastructure, a much more developed culture, but that also, as Jonathan and others have pointed out, leads to some very challenging ideas being expressed as well. And we can see, in some ways, the snowballing of the sorts of techniques that will become very important um, with the imperial crisis and the coming of the revolution. So in what ways did print culture materially affect the processes and the key events of the American Revolution? Well, I think it's I think it's actually pretty hard to overplay the role of the newspaper in the coming of the revolution. Specifically, you know, there was as we've talked about a rapid expansion in the number of printers and in printed matter, especially newspaper, uh, in the decades uh, before that sort of set the stage for the the revolutionary decades of the 1760s and 1770s. From the start of the imperial crisis, newspapers played a crucial role, right? Most commonly, they disseminated news from England and, you know, sort of polemical political essays uh, that either attacked or defended the mother country. But it, it also, uh, newspapers also helped create what some historians call a quote-unquote imagined community, right? Or a public or uh, sort of more commonly uh, the public sphere. Uh, in 1765, for example, news about the growing resistance to the Stamp Act and then about the riot in Boston filtered down to Connecticut and New York, Philadelphia, uh, Virginia, and Charleston. And this is the idea that Ken talked about in the Whitfield example. You know, historians argue that, you know, the spread of this news uh, gave colonists from 13 very distinct and different colonies, you know, a sense that they were part of something larger than just their own colony. Right, that it helped create the ideas of a sort of shared political and economic interest among colonies that was crucial to conducting resistance in the 1760s and organizing rebellion in the 1770s. 
And I think it also helped radicalise. I mean, one of the most famous examples of this is in the Virginia Resolves on the Stamp Act, where Patrick Henry proposes a series of incendiary resolves to the Virginia House of Burgesses, and the first four are officially approved, but the last three aren't. Um, they don't get the official stamp of the Virginia legislature, um, but nevertheless they are printed throughout the colonies as if they have. They're printed on the list of resolves alongside those that have been officially passed. And these are the ones that go so far as to say anyone that supports the Stamp Act should be publicly ostracized as an enemy to His Majesty's colony. You know, they, they really take the resistance a step further. And so that wider access and some of that informality, that blurring of the lines of authority that print provides, actually causes material step changes in the way that people experience the revolution and, and make decisions on how to act accordingly. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, it also affected institutions themselves, right? I mean, if you think about the, the Continental Congress in 1774 through 76, I mean, uh, you know, print culture and print itself is absolutely instrumental, if not fundamental, uh, to, to the Congress sort of establishing its legitimacy uh, throughout the colonies, right? This is uh, news of the Congress filters out the um, uh, documents and resolves passed by the Congress filter out, and and it's essential for the Congress that that news circulates, and because this creates a sort of a sense of legitimacy around the Congress. So you know it has an important impact on the w the way uh, citizens are participating in politics and relating to government, and it also has. Um, an impact on the way that government is is relating to uh, citizens. And I think another thing that we can see within print culture, within the revolution, is the way that they're able to express revolutionary ideas. And we've talked about some of these uses in previous episodes, the episode on Bernard Balin's ideological origins of the American Revolution, and the episode on Tom Paine um, talked about the spread of pamphlets quite a bit as well. And although it's easy to overstate how far pamphlets could spread ideas. Um, it's also clear that the widespread dissemination of pamphlets allowed revolutionary ideas to be discussed at a greater length than could easily be done within a newspaper, but also in a pretty accessible way too. So even ideas that started off in, in newspapers, like John Dickinson's letter from a farmer in Pennsylvania, could then get distributed as a pamphlet in which all the letters were collected together and give a systematic introduction to the sort of Republican thought that Dickinson was using to critique the British Empire. Common Sense is clearly the, the most famous pamphlet um, that, that comes out of the revolutionary years and um, has often been credited with really sparking a push towards independence, although in the Payne episode we, we questioned exactly how far it did. But nevertheless, again, it gave the opportunity for ideas to be laid out at length, but nevertheless in a persuasive writing style and in a way that could be disseminated much further than simply reporting the news of a town meeting. And also in, in a much more immediate sense, you, know, you got the chance individually to engage with those ideas rather than, than hearing them reported secondhand. So newspapers were important in, in reporting the news of the revolution, but the pamphlets were important in, in taking those, the news of those events and spreading them out into a much deeper ideological form. When the fighting actually broke out, newspapers and pamphlets were also one of the ways in which stories of the fighting circulated, because many regions were isolated from the fighting at different times and in, uh, and in different places. And so what's so interesting, if you follow the print culture of the war, certain stories get recycled that may or may not be true, uh, British massacres or... British atrocities, or in the case of you know, British pamphlet literature, American atrocities. It, it's just very interesting that 
the experience of the war was as much a print experience as it for some areas of the country, particularly, for example, the South during the more northern phase of the war and the north during the more southern phase of the war than it than it was for some, in some cases a actual physical experience you know we've been talking about print as a way of bringing uh, the the colonies together we've been talking about how uh, it it basically brings together a continent but there's also a transatlantic dimension to this if we think about the the American war as an event that involves Britain and France as well um, it, print is also how uh, readers how, how ordinary people in in these other countries are learning what's going on. It's shaping their opinion of what's happening. And David Bell, for example, writing about um, French patriotism, has shown that stories about the United States become uh, are used by the French government to mobilize public opinion in a certain way. And actually, George Washington is a fairly prominent figure in French print culture during these years, as the French come to terms with their own participation in this national event. And print also becomes a way of spreading uh, the influence of the American Revolution then in turn um, beyond its immediate uh, ramifications in the colonies. And it's true. Uh, I mean, the same is true with uh, Native Americans, right? Uh, print is very key to disseminating the role that Native Americans played both in actuality and imagined. You know, you, you hear a lot about fears of Native uh, alliances with the British in the print. In print. You, you read of uh, massacres that may or may not have ever happened. And it, it, these sort of, this image of sort of, and terror of Native Americans that emerges out of the revolutionary of print is going to have deep repercussions uh, once the United States becomes a firm, independent republic. It's perhaps not surprising, given the importance of print culture in both colonial society and in the shaping of the revolution, um, that following the war for independence, print culture grows even more and takes on new forms as Americans try and create a national, political, social and cultural life that reflects the ideals that they've espoused during the Revolutionary War itself. So at this point in the podcast, we're going to shift to talking about the way that print culture operates in the early Republic and into the 19th century, and the role that it plays as Americans are forming their new institutions. How does print culture adapt to reflect those new institutions? So I think that one of the, the standout moments probably in this immediate uh, post-war period uh, in terms of print culture and uh, government and institutions is the uh, ratification of the Constitution. Ken, you're going to say something about that. Yeah, and I think if we're if we're looking at seminal moments in in the development of print culture, ratification clearly is a a step change in the nature of of public debate. That even a document like the Declaration of Independence has been important, and the printed nature of the dissemination of the Declaration has been important. But there's nothing like the vigorous discussion of the Constitution that emerges in the ratification debates. Um, we've talked before on this podcast about Pauline Mayer's book, Ratification, and that really places the print war right at the heart of the debate that takes place over ratification, where both sides line up very quickly to engage in a vicious and vitriolic paper war um, over the, the merits of the new constitution. And I think what's most remarkable really about it is that despite the fact that it's this vituperative, it nevertheless produces some very innovative and long-lasting discourses on the purpose of Republican government. Clearly the most famous of these is the Federalist Papers, um, which comes out of the 
intense and deep struggle to win the ratification debate in the state of New York. And the vitality comes out of how high the stakes were perceived to be. But we can look on the other side of the debates as well to find um, writers using pseudonyms like Brutus and Cato um, and the Sentinel and the Federal Farmer that resist ratification as well. And we've got this wonderful historical record of just how vibrant and active the debate over the ratification of the Constitution was. And that really cemented the importance of newspapers in particular at the heart of political debate. These were the venues in which these essays were being published and in which this debate was was taking place. And although we see the beginning of a change, um, which is to say that there is some movement towards having Federalist and Anti-Federalist newspapers, that is, newspapers take on the partisan divides that are splitting the country as well, rather than being more open repositories as they were earlier in the 18th century. Nevertheless, it speaks to the importance of newspapers in being both a conduit for and shaping the parameters of political debate beyond newspapers, I mean, publishing in general uh, really exploded in these uh, post-war decades, especially the, the, the two decades or so after uh, the ratification of the Constitution, right? There was a great expansion in the publishing of historical works and works of other genres that were historically based, like poetry and drama and fiction. And uh, access to books was expanding. Social libraries increased exponentially. Uh, there were more newspapers, and they were publishing more often. You, you get see our first uh, daily newspapers emerge in this period. Both these these partisan debates that we've been discussing and um, the work of historians raise actually a very troubling question in the first two or three decades um, of the early republic. As American leaders uh, face a real problem, the United States is politically independent, perhaps, um, and it has a kind of a central government, but culturally, uh, for many purposes, its cities are still outposts of the British Empire, or so it would seem based on what people are are reading outside of newspapers. Um, partly this is because of infrastructure. It's just easier to move printed works across the ocean than it is to move them over land. Um, but as a result, by the early 1790s, you have on the one hand Federalist intellectuals, people like Noah Webster, are, are worried that the U.S. will fall apart if it doesn't develop some kind of a national culture expressed in print. But on the other hand, Republican intellectuals are worried that the U.S. Um, might become too British or too European in its thinking and want us to develop um, not just a national print culture but a, a unique and Republican literature. But it's very hard to figure out what an American literature should look like. Um, what are American values and traditions? What does American life in Boston have to do with American life in Baltimore or in Cincinnati? These are, are things that have to be worked out by people involved in print production. There's also a very practical problem. Um, uh, more and more, the Federal Postal Service makes it uh, easy and cheap to send newspapers across the country, but books and magazines are often another story. So it takes a lot of work for, say, a, a printer like Matthew Carey in Philadelphia, who's a real pioneer in this, uh, to get his publications to market in other cities. And although American writers keep starting magazines to try to bring together American culture somehow, it's really difficult for them to keep them going. And it's really not until after the War of 1812, I think, that we start to see more of a consensus form about what American literature should look like, um, partly because the war, uh, in some respects, brings Federalists and Republicans together in opposition to the literati of England. Um, and the late 18-teens and uh, 1820s give us what's sometimes called the paper war, uh, as American authors square off against British reviewers to show that, in fact, the United States does have something to offer the world of letters. 
recent uh, history historians have also called the question just how national this print culture actually is. How uh, you know how much did these texts that we consider seminal and consider national dating all the way back to the to the early republic or to the revolution with uh, texts like Common Sense and then moving to the early republic with the Federalist? Just how much these texts actually circulated? And so sort of this reverses the traditional story. It, it, it says that, look, actually what made the American Revolution possible and what made the coalition of these independent states into a, a nation possible on a level of print was actually that they each colony come state was actually relatively isolated, particularly outside of its region. And so there could be this sort of creative misunderstandings that allowed slave-holding Southerners to imagine a certain national culture and Northerners to imagine a different national culture and later. Westerners to imagine one. And the fact that these print cultures were not fully in conversation with each other, at least through the War of 1812 into even the Jacksonian period, was actually a boon for American nationalism. But actually, as print culture begins, as Jonathan noted, to coalesce after the War of 1812 into a truly national culture, uh, we you know, that's actually when things begin to fall apart. That's when you begin to see these big... Uh, sectional debates over questions of slavery and questions of economic policy that really become divisive and eventually do lead to civil war. But I want to push back a little bit on that because I think that certainly politicians in the 1790s especially recognised the importance of print networks and it might not be the national print culture that we have today with broadcast networks and nationally known newspapers but nevertheless the fact that um, federalists will use John Fenno as their de facto printer um, as well as for disseminating information through his Gazette of the United States um, speaks to their knowledge of how important keeping having some control of a message that's going to spread nationally is. The fact that Jefferson pays Philip Frineau um, as a translator for the Department of State, but with the agreement that he will use that to pay his living whilst he's actually running a Republican newspaper in opposition to the schemes of Friends of, of Hamilton says that there's at least something to the idea of a national distribution of news and that even though it might not be perfect, nevertheless there are broad parameters being set and I think if we look at say Francois Furstenberg's work on the dissemination of the Farewell Address um, in the years after 1796, or indeed even the fact that the farewell address is never read in person but appears in print, shows that even in the 1790s there is a national angle to print. It might not be quite as coalescent as some of the definitions of nationalism have led us to believe in the past, but nevertheless we shouldn't decry that national story because it's very important in the way that political debate takes place um, in the early republic. I think it might be useful to draw a distinction between a national network of print markets and uh, a single national print market that we might imagine, where everyone is sort of taking part in this one uh, ideological playing field. Because very often, um, although I mean a reader somewhere on the frontier might be reading stories about what's going on uh, in Washington. Um, it's often it's going to be filtered through local printers. It's going to be ex excerpted in a, a local newspaper, often with the, a local editor's gloss on what's going on. And I think this uh, really should shape how we understand nationality in print in the early republic. If there is one truly inarguable national print culture in the early republic, it would be, of course, a Protestant religious uh, print culture. Uh, and it sort of sees its fullest expression in what's called the Second Great Awakening, which has a sort of interesting relationship with the First Great Awakening, which, again, we talk about in our episode uh, on this subject. Uh, this, uh, pam both pamphlets, uh, 
Bibles, sermon literature, uh, polemics were all printed throughout the, the colonies. Uh, you know, you see some of the largest printing that went on was not political printing, but rather religious printing. And what makes uh, this, this religious national print culture extremely interesting uh, is that it uh, allowed for the participation of women uh, explicitly as consumers, as a, in which the culture and the society was telling them that this is an acceptable literature for them to consume openly, but also increasingly throughout the early years of the 19th century and certainly expanding into the antebellum and later periods of the 19th century, uh, women explicitly intervening as authors. And and then also you see African-American voices in, in increasingly in this religious discourse. And more so, I would argue, than politics, really what is a glue of print in America in the 19th century is this Protestant religious culture. And then later, as you know, Catholics become more and more prominent, a Catholic print culture, and also uh, as you know, work on uh, other religious minorities such as Jews also shows that the, there's a centrality of just all different faiths gluing themselves together, no matter where you are, by print. Absolutely. And Roy, I think you're you're really describing the way that if there is a national print culture coming together in the 19th century, it's a print culture of reform. It's a print culture of activism. Um, and there is kind of a there's a progressive cast to it as well as a nationalist cast. And uh, that brings us really into the paradox described by Trish Lochran, where um, we have a national print culture coming together as a result of technological changes. Printing uh, becomes much cheaper as a result of, um, I guess, what we might call mass production methods. Um, uh, technologies like stereotype and lithography and wood engraving really open up what authors and editors and printers can do to transmit print um, and uh, Technological changes um, also make it easier to distribute these uh, printed works across uh, great distances. Ultimately, this means much greater accessibility, especially after, let's say, the 1830s. Um, this accessibility also brings new groups into um, this national print market, as you said. Um, in 1827, we see the first African-American newspaper, Freedom's Journal, contributing new voices to this national discussion about reform. In this case, um, uh, black authors and editors are fighting back against the assumptions of white print culture when it comes to slavery and anti-slavery. They're pushing back actually against some white anti-slavery narratives, um, trying to speak with um, their own voice. We wish to plead our own cause, the editors of Freedom's Journal say. Um, Women also increasingly, as you said, are, are welcomed in this conversation. Um, by the 1840s, especially, I'd say that magazine literature is dominated by women as authors and editors as well, including Sarah Josepha Hale, a very powerful editor of Godey's Ladies Book in Philadelphia. Um, what this means is that uh, there's a proliferation of voices providing different perspectives within this national print culture, and more and more people are coming, uh, people have reason to question um, whether they really are uh, living in the same culture. Um, as people are fighting for reform, they're also um, questioning the values of different regions of the country. Uh, so this national print culture as it's forming is also fueling national debate that will prove ultimately, as we know, very divisive. So I think the question that comes out of what you said there, Jonathan, and what historians are currently writing about print culture is the question of whether print culture does really act as something that is unifying within American culture, or whether it's something that's a lot more divisive. Um, Roy, what are your thoughts on the question? Well, I think one of the things that's most striking in, in the most recent literature is just the insight that the more people talk to each other and the more and in this case or write to each other in this case uh the less understanding there is of each other that sort of the more ignorant 
one can often be of one's neighbors, the more likely one is able to work with them and unify. But it's sort of as the various regional print cultures, particularly the southern print culture and the northern print culture, are increasingly, as Jonathan noted, brought into conversation with one another by technological change, by institutional change, by the fact that they are now clearly all operating in a single nation and vying for political influence. The more and more that these two cultures are smashing into one another, the more defensive and the more particularist they become. And that sort of debate and discussion and intercourse, which Republican uh, theory and Republican hopes had been pinned on during the revolution and the very early republic, you know, the more that actually happens in the 19th century, the more America falls apart. Uh, and I think that's one of the most striking things about the role of print, that we like to think that debate is a great, is a great unifying uh, feature of democracy and, and, and of, our, of our national story. But actually, the history of the 19th century is it's actually more divisive. But, I mean, we talk about print culture as having a unifying effect on colonial society in the 18th century. It clearly didn't have a unifying effect on imperial society in the 18th century. It depends on where we look at the different, um, where we place the parameters of our, our vision as to whether this is something that's unifying or more divisive. Um, this is probably an unhelpful thing to be throwing in right at the end of a podcast on print culture, but this is, I'm always a little bit wary of the use of the term print culture, because I think it provides the idea that there is more coherence to the use of print in colonial and early American society than, than actually exists. That you know, in some ways print is a technology and different communities and different groups put it to different purposes. And in some cases that can be unifying and in some cases that can be um, divisive. But when looked at as a whole, people are using print for so many different purposes that whether it actually coheres closely enough to be one particular culture, I'm not completely convinced by that argument. I would say that print is important and that we should be very sensitive to the way that different people use print, but I think that we can mask as much as we illuminate by referring to this as a coherent culture. Uh, thank you, listener. You have just wasted the last 50 minutes of your life. <laughs> we now resume normal programming. Ouch. <laughs> mm. Oh, and out. <laughs> Ken Owen has just broke your brain. <laughs> Yes, all, 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 of, all of which is to say we should pay close attention to all the different forms and events that we've looked at, but perhaps be a bit suspicious of the overarching framework we've used for this episode. I think maybe we're raising the question here, Ken, of um, whether there is such a thing as one print culture, or whether we're actually talking about various cultures of print making possible different conversations at the same time. You know, the temptation is very strong um, to adopt a really unified uh, narrative and describe a unified voice, and I'm, I'm guilty of this myself in what I've been saying uh, in this discussion. Uh, but really, when we are talking about such a massive proliferation of publications and venues, we're talking about countless opportunities for people to engage each other in a massive, moving uh, conversation of conversations. And if we talk about whether print is unifying or not to the nation, I think we have to take that into account. Um, that people are forming multiple identities at the same time as they're taking part in these conversations. And so in the 1850s, perhaps it's useful to think of it that way. Perhaps it's useful to think of regional print cultures taking shape within uh, a set of national conversations. Um, where different regions are coming together um, and increasingly finding that they don't have a basis for agreeing about the national issues. 
I think that brings us to a natural ending point for today's discussion. Although one thing I will point out is that throughout our discussion today, we have mentioned other Juntocast episodes in which print culture does play an important part. Um, those include our episode on The Great Awakening, our episode on Thomas Paine, and our episode on the Constitution, as well as our discussion of Bernard Balin's The Ideological Origins of the American Revolution. So if you're interested in picking up on some of the events and themes that we've talked about in a little more detail, do go back and look at those earlier episodes um, to, to flesh out the way that print culture plays a part in, in some more specific events in early American history. The Junto cast is produced by bloggers at the Junto blog, which you can find at earlyamericanist.com. If you want updates from the Junto cast, you can find us on Facebook, you can find us in the iTunes store, and you can find us on Twitter using the handle at JuntoCast. Please do get in contact with us through any of those means, um, but we'd be particularly grateful if you could go to the iTunes store and leave us a rating and review, because that helps other listeners find our podcast. You could also email us at thejuntocast at gmail.com. That leaves me to thank my fellow panellists today. So thank you, Michael. Thank you, Ken. Thank you, Roy. Thanks, Ken. And thank you, Jonathan. Thank you, Ken. And finally, thank you all for listening, and we hope you'll join us for the next episode.